Hey, this is Dave Pryor. You're about to listen to an interview with Megan McInerney on how to deal with the Hunger Games type of approach to sprint planning. Before we get to the podcast, there's two notes that I'd like to share. First is that Megan's Twitter has been fully restored. So if you'd like to check that out or reach out to her, you'll find a link to that in the show notes. And the second is I would like to offer some thanks to the folks at Bureau of Digital. This topic came up during the Q&A portion of a webinar that I did for them recently. Um, Normally, the Bureau provides recorded versions of webinars only to members, but I told them I was going to be using the question from the webinar in a podcast, and so they opened it up to the public, and you will find a link to the Bureau site and to the webinar in the show notes for this podcast as well. And that's it. I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Thanks. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Today I'm here with Megan McInerney. Thank you for being here, Megan. Thanks for having me. Um, And we're going to talk about uh, a question that I got a few weeks ago. I did a a session for the Bureau of Digital, and at the end we did a little bit of a QA. and a and I got a question from somebody that was attending the session, and I was trying to think of like, wow, this is a really good question. Who should I go ask? And I think, Megan, because of your background, you're the perfect person to, uh, to field the question. So before we talk about your background, can you tell the folks what you're doing now and what exactly a director of a strategic experience design does? <laughs> yes. So I am director of strategic experience design at Best Buy. And so my team works within the larger experience team in Best Buy. So that comprises a customer experience and employee experience. And what my team does specifically is we help the organization envision the experiences that our customers are going to need and expect one to three years in the future. Wow. So our team is really kind of helping to set a longer term strategic vision for the organization around what customer experiences should be. And as part of that, also bringing into that what kind of employee experiences will also be needed to help us deliver on those customer experiences. And then our work then transitions to a lot of the operational teams in the organization to figure out how to bring that vision to life. And even if we can't get to the full vision of you know that one to three year picture that we're trying to paint, how close can we get and how can we align the efforts of the organization to that longer vision? And so you're talking about the physical locations and, and not just the internet. I mean, talking about the whole deal. Yep, across all channels. So whether it's going into a Best Buy store, whether it's the experience of someone from Best Buy coming into your home, because a lot of what we do are services inside the home, whether that's Geek Squad coming into your home and helping you with any of the technology in your home, whether it's us installing entertainment systems or appliances. There's a whole variety of ways that people interact with Best Buy. And then our website, our app. Um, Our team is really trying to think across all of those channels and outside of all of the silos that exist in a really large organization, how do we focus on what the customer really needs and wants? This has got to be an incredibly fascinating time to be doing that with all the stuff that's going on and the, the complete and total lack of certainty that you can have about what it's going to be like three years from now. Yeah, that is absolutely right. And as part of that, you know, our team's focus in the short term has really come down to what, how do we need to pivot right now? And as you can imagine, from 
March until today, there have been lots and lots of pivots. So our we closed all of our retail locations uh, for at the beginning of the pandemic to ensure that we could reopen in a way that was safe for our customers and for our employees. So the first pivot we made was rolling out curbside pickup nationwide. So previously to that, we had only piloted curbside pickup during holiday 2019. Okay. And my team was, it, just as an example of kind of how our work flows, my team had helped to envision what our customer needs around curbside pickup, designed that experience, helped the organization pilot it, and then obviously way sooner than one to three years in the future, yeah. as, as an organization, we had to figure out, okay, how do we scale up curbside pickup across every single retail location in the middle of a pandemic? And so our team kind of came down a little bit from that one to three years in the past couple of months to really help the operational teams bring that voice of the customer into these really quick turn pivots that we were making as an organization. And then it was those curbs I pick up and then it was, all right, well, how do we get our employees back into people's homes safely so that we can start doing installs of refrigerators and other things that are really critical for people to have in their homes. Better but, routers and things like that. Now. Yes. Yes. So, and so it's it has be, been exciting and super fascinating. Now, when people go into the store, I'm assuming they still go into the store mostly because they want to touch and use the thing before they buy it, right? Yeah, there are certain things that uh, require, you want to see it, you want to see different options. You often want to ask an expert a lot of questions about yeah. it to make sure that you're buying the right thing. So when we first, most of our stores now, you can just walk into the stores, but the sort of phased approach we had was first it was curbside only and then we opened up for appointments for particular types of purchases and so it was exactly the kinds of purchases that you're talking about okay. appliances uh, laptops yeah. mobile phones like things show where me you... all the dishwashers i'm going to buy yes. one okay yes wow um, and then at the same time we launched a virtual consulting service so you could from your home consult with a Best Buy expert. Um, I actually did this. I wanted to buy a new TV and I was able to consult with a Best Buy advisor online. And he helped, you know, look at my space virtually and helped guide me toward the right thing to buy. Wow. And I was able to buy it online. So, and then eventually we got back to like, okay, you can just show up at the store and you can come in. And so it's, now what's interesting is all of those options are now available. So yeah. every, everything was like a yes and, yes and. So this is really cool because I want to talk about your, your previous job in a moment, but when you got into that, that was sort of still in the early stages of that becoming a really big deal. And you watched that grow and change and you've jumped into retail at a time when the entire idea of retail is completely changing. Yes. Yeah, that has been really fascinating. This is my first foray into a retail environment. It's my first time working for a really large company, thousands of people. Uh, first time working for a publicly traded company. So there's all kinds of nuance about, uh, you know, what kind of expectations you're setting for investors and how the company is performing. And that was really what I was looking for was something new where I could jump into the deep end of the pool and learn. Yeah. And wow, did I get it. That's awesome. And I, I, so I think it's really brave. And I just want to point this out. Whenever I run across people that are like stuck and they don't like their jobs, 
I have a lot of empathy for that, but at the same time, I, I just feel like if you're not constantly finding new work that's going to challenge you and push you in uncomfortable ways, you're not going to be growing. And that's what's the point of spending all that time every day doing something where you're not being challenged? Yeah, and it was very, very scary. So I was at, we can talk about uh, my gig at Clockwork in a minute, but I was at Clockwork for almost 14 years. I had worked with the CEO for almost 20 years on and off. She's one of my best friends. I loved the company, still love it. I loved the leadership. I, I loved everything about it. And yet there was this little voice inside me that was saying, you, there, there's something else. Like you need to be doing something else. And I tried to talk myself out of it. I, it, it, it did feel like a really risky leap to take. Yeah. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that I had no idea that on the very near horizon of me leaving pandemic that, um, was a pandemic. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that is really true. We sometimes get stuck in something and what we really sometimes need to do is to shake it up. And that can be a really, really scary thing. And for me, it was both personally and professionally really scary, but it felt like something I had to do. And the fact that it worked out just underscored for me that when you listen to your gut, the thing that is supposed to happen will happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, c congratulations on it, on it turning out so well. Um, so I'm going to raise the question then, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about clockwork and why um, your experience makes you the perfect person to help this poor soul who attended the <laughs> workshop. So the question was, what advice do you have on structuring sprint planning meetings in an agency setting with different product owners and project teams when each PM is competing for the same development resources? So to give you a little bit more background, because I did dig into it a little with the person, in the digital agency that they work at, there is no overall establishment of priority in terms of projects or clients. They have a pool of project managers who have to fight each other for a single pool of resources and to try to grab as much of whatever people they need for their projects. And all of them are obviously because it's an agency working on like 13 different projects at once, as are all their team members. Um, so this person is trying to figure out like, how do I, how do I know what to prioritize from the, from the client perspective, from the company perspective? How do I figure out how to get resources from my project? Um, and with that, maybe you can talk a little bit about your gig at Clockwork and, and that'll kind of fill in the gaps there. Sure. Well, first of all, yes, I am, I am very familiar with the Hunger Games uh, <laughs> model of <laughs> trying to manage who's working on your project, which is just you go into the arena and you all battle it out. Uh, so I have a lot of empathy for that, that question and where it's coming from. So my, my career, I, I was at Clockwork for 14 years um, as a project manager, helped to, to build the strategy and UX practices there as well. And over the last three years at Clockwork was really focused on transforming us into a more agile organization. And how do we do that as an agency, which for all the reasons you just outlined are really challenging. You have multiple clients, you have multiple pieces of work coming in, multiple priorities. And so we spent, for the exact reason of the question you outlined, because of all that tension, we really felt like the right thing to do here is for us to shift the way we work pretty dramatically. 
because otherwise we're setting up all of our people to have kind of a miserable experience in feeling pulled in a bunch of different directions and we're not serving our clients as well as we could. But it is no small feat to try to shift an agency into working in that way. There are a lot of challenges to it. And so prior to Clockwork, I also worked at a couple of advertising agencies in their digital departments, which ran very much like what this person is describing, which is you're given something to do. The thing that you're trying to get done directly competes with the thing that the person in the office next to you is trying to get done. And you're using all of the same people to do it. And nobody's telling you which thing's going to, like to me that, that the, the core part of the problem is that management in this person's case was not saying, okay, this is the top priority for the company. This is the second, this is the third, and we'll allocate people accordingly. They were just like, you have this stuff, go figure it out. And I guess there's a part of me that also understands that. And I'm going to check in with you on this before I actually ask a question, but, um, my understanding of that business, assuming it hasn't changed much since I worked in it, is that most of them are set up in a way where they have many, many, as many clients as they can get. They might have schedules and deadlines, but those things all fall off the table as soon as the client doesn't respond in a timely manner. Yes. You never know when you're going to get paid. I mean, you have it in a contract, but you don't know when it's going to happen. So you've constantly got to be juggling all these balls, hoping that the checks are coming in fast enough that you can keep paying everybody. Yes. Okay. Which then it is kind of like Hunger Games. Yeah. It, very, very much so. So how would you go about, or how did you go about letting staff know which projects or which clients were top priority? So I think the first thing that is important to talk about is that inherent in this person's question are all of the conflicting ways in which the agency is operating, which is we want you to do sprint planning, which, it, which I take to mean we want you to be working in a more agile fashion. Yeah. And yet we as an organization are not going to provide any of the other necessary structures around that sprint planning that actually make the sprint planning work. So there's just like the question is the problem, which is why are we doing sprint planning if the actual structure of the agency is not set up in a way to make that sprint plan useful? We are not prioritizing. We are not giving people the autonomy to make the decisions they need to make about how things are done. So I know that it is out of this person's control to change those things. And I think to the extent that it is possible, I think it's very important to try to manage up and to communicate to the other people leading the organization what it is that you need from them to be successful. And there's a way of doing that that can feel like, that can feel to the person you're communicating with like complaining or throwing up barriers to actually yeah. getting the work done. And there's a way of communicating that that says, hey, I know that we have the same goal, which is we want the client to be wildly happy and we want them to pay us a lot of money because we're delivering so much value. Here's, here are some things that you could do to help me do that better. And so I think 
one thing that I would love to see more project managers and teams doing is that communicating up in a really constructive way about how their managers and leaders can help support them in delivering the thing that collectively everyone wants to deliver. Wow, I have a whole lot of questions about this, and I'm going to try to keep my generational biases in a box for a minute. <laughs> um, okay, so if I'm this person, this is actually a, a really important question because I get this in class all the time. Um, I want to manage up. My company, you know, one of them read some article in Harvard Business Review and decided we were going to go agile, but they've done nothing to change the structure of the company or the way we take in work or how they manage or any of that. They just expect us to do it. And like you said, there's no scaffolding to build it on. So you can't actually do it. Um, in your role as a CFO, if I was coming to you and trying to say, look, here's what I need, you know, help me help you kind of a thing. How can I say that without coming across as like, give me the things or, you know, you're in my way or, or like, how would I build a case? What kind of data, what kind of story, what kind of stuff would make you go, huh, maybe I need to look at that more. So I think it always helps to focus on the shared outcome that we both want. So if I am talking to, if I'm managing up to someone who is in a finance realm, I'm going to frame my conversation around the profit output, the efficiency. Like I, I'm going to frame up what I need from them in a way that focuses on the answer to the question, what's in it for me? Okay. Folks who are in change management practices will recognize that question like a core part of change management is when you're focusing on the audience that you're communicating to that you're starting with if you're in their seat they're asking yeah what's in it for me like what yeah. why do I need to do this why do I need to care and I think a lot of times when we are managing up we focus on what I need as the person who's communicating and not what the person I'm communicating to needs and when we focus on what they need or what motivates them, it's a lot easier to get on the same page about how they could show up differently or do something differently so that both of you get the outcome that you want. Okay. I'm okay. trying to think of like maybe an example for this. Um, I'll, I'll use a really simple example. Uh, several years ago, I was meeting with a member of our creative team. And he was saying to me, I, I need more time. There, this isn't, we don't have enough time in the timeline. Like I can't do my best work. And what I said to him was, I, I really respect that. In my entire career as a project manager, I have never once had a team member come to me and say, wow, we have enough time and we have enough budget. <laughs> and you gave me all the people I wanted. Yes. So I, I was trying to coach him on how to communicate his concern to his project manager at the time. So what I said was, listen, in my career, I have never once had a team member say, I have enough time, I have enough money, thank you so much. But what I have heard every single time is, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough budget, how can I do this, throw up the hands. Yeah. 
in my position as a project manager, if a team member comes to me and says that, my first reaction is exactly what I just said. Cool. Heard that every day for my entire career. Get, <laughs> get out of here. Good. It, right? If I, yeah, exactly. My plan is coming to fruition. Um, but if I think about, if you go to that person, if you go to the project manager and say something more specific, like if I had eight more hours, I could create a concept that would help meet the client's need to convert more, you know, shopping cart customers to whatever. That as a project manager, I can understand and say, absolutely, I can advocate for eight more hours for us to help the client get the outcome that they actually want. That I can do and that I can get behind. Or I can say, hey, yeah, you're right. Why don't we spend a little less time in this area and I'll make sure you have a little more time in this area? Because you've helped me understand the specific outcome that we both share and why you need me to do something different for you to get that outcome. Okay. So that's like a really like simple, low level kind of example of that. But yeah. just that simple change in how it was communicated helps the other person get it instead of seeing you as being obstructive, complaining, annoying, right? It's like, because everybody, any person who is in a position of leadership or management is used to people coming into their office all the time and just flopping a problem on their desk and being like, look at that problem. And like, so if you can be the person who comes in and says, Hey, here's a challenge that we share together. We're sitting on the same side of the table and we have this problem together. I have one idea on how to solve it. You might have some other ideas. Like, can we solve this together? That's a different, it just creates a different interaction, a different vibe. And it creates a different sense of collaboration on how can we get a different outcome together? And I'm assuming you'd have to be okay with in that moment. The answer might be, you know what? That's a great idea. We're not doing that. We don't have eight hours. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but at least you're making the, at least then it's the person is clear on what saying no to the eight hours means. Yeah. So the, one of the things that I started thinking when you were talking about it was if I'm trying to build a pitch to say, you know, I need, if you give me these four people, I can do this thing. If I don't have clarity on what's mattering to people at the strategic level of the company, because they're they're having conversations I'm not a part of. I don't see the things that they see. I just know that in my little world, this thing right now is broke. And if I had what I say I need, then I could fix it. And that matters to me. Mm -hmm. But how do I go about framing the conversation if I don't have clarity on what matters to the other person? Can I even do that? I think it is very difficult if you truly have no idea what matters to that person. Like I know if you're finance, I'm going to talk about money, but if I don't know what's going on with the company, like, you know, the company's in financial danger and I'm like, let's spend $50 million on my new thing here. (laughs) Not a good time to have that conversation. Yep. Yep. So one, I would say one way of, getting clarity on that is to ask. And so to go to someone and say, here's a challenge that I'm having. And I could really use some help in thinking through this. And, and what's, what's really important to you in this? 
Like, what does success look like for you in this? And because a lot of times we assume what other people want or need, and we may or may not be right. And we don't do enough asking what other people actually need. And that simple ask of asking, even when it's someone who ranks above you, that can, that can really create a shift in the relationship to say, it matters to me what matters to you. And so instead of just coming into your office and saying, these are all the things I need, me, 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 I'm really interested in what do you need and how can I help you get that? And oh, by the way, here's a way that uh, you could make it easier for me to give you that. So if, if the person was acting as a product owner for the client, what, what you're suggesting is that they're also begin acting as a product owner for the company they work for, which, I mean, to me, that would be part of it anyway. But I think when you're newer to this role, you might be more client-focused than company-focused, but you'd have to be able to do both. I think that's right. And I think whether you're in the role of product owner or project manager, I have always felt like that role truly serves more than one audience and it can be very difficult to do because at certain times you are in a position where you are advocating for the client and advocating for them in a way, I don't want to say it's at odds with the organization, but sometimes you are saying to the organization, hang on, that's not what's right for this client or this piece of work. At other times you're doing the opposite, which is advocating in some ways for the needs of your organization to the client. And so it, it, it's a really complicated role. Like you don't serve just one person or group of people. Yeah. You're really in the center of a lot of competing needs and desired outcomes. And it takes a lot of strategic thinking to, for you to get straight on who is the most important set of people for me to advocate for in this moment. And for me, the three main groups of people are the client, the business who pays you, and your team. And at different times, you're advocating for one of those groups with the other groups, you know, and saying to your organization, hey, hang on, what we're doing right now is not helping the team who's delivering the work. We're not giving them good priorities, like, or clarity on priorities. Um, So it's a, it's a complicated seat to sit in. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, I would like to sort of switch gears for a moment. I want to, to ask you for advice on another angle of this question. I've been in situations where I worked at companies where there was no clarity from management on what mattered more. And part of the reasoning behind that seemed to be that they were afraid to make a decision and they were going to let the teams fight it out because they, the people that I was you know, reporting to didn't want responsibility or were afraid to take it or whatever. So it created a situation where it kind of was very Hunger Games with the other PMs and myself and the people that rose to the top were the people that found a way to get their thing done no matter what, which required a lot of backdoor negotiation, a lot of kind of crafty work (laughs) to get things done. Assuming that it is somebody who's earlier in their career um, and they're faced in a situation where they're surrounded by PMs and it is sort of this like, I'm going to get mine, screw the rest of you, my project's going to win. Uh, 
I'm assuming at some point you may have had something like that, but um, what kind of advice would you give to either your younger self or somebody else who is getting started in project management in that kind of a situation where it's this cutthroat thing or survival of the fittest, whoever gets their projects done wins regardless of what they have to do to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're giving me flashbacks to a, a <laughs> the eye twitch is coming back now. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> uh, so there was a time in my career when I worked at an advertising agency and um, this was at a time when digital was still relatively new. And so we were often given people to work on our projects who did not necessarily have digital experience. And to be totally frank, were part of a generation of people that didn't really think that web mattered very much anyway. So they wanted to be working on like TV spots and other things. And so when they were assigned to the work, like they, they could have given a rat's ass. Yeah. And so and to add to that, they ranked higher than me in the organization and uh, they were a lot older than me. And so I was pretty new in my career at this point. And to what you just said, not only... It was can, not I ask, a, can I ask one clarifying question? Sure, yeah. I'm assuming that many of these people were male. Yes, yes. Okay. Because yes, I think that's part of it too, especially if you're a younger female in the, in the field. Absolutely. And if we're talking about that, in, in my case, this wasn't true, but for people listening, there, there may also sometimes be race differences that add to the power dynamic, right? So imagine if I was a young black woman, this dynamic would have been exponentially even more complicated. Yeah. So yeah, power differentials all over the place. And in this organization, it wasn't necessarily that leadership didn't want to or was afraid to make priority decisions. It was that the, or, the organization was so siloed that there wasn't anyone who was making why organization-wide priority decisions. It was just things coming at you from every direction. Yeah. And so the way that I, the advice that I would give to someone in how to solve a situation like this, and I think this may be also a more tactical answer to the original question, is to build coalitions amongst your peers. So if you cannot get support from the organization in setting priorities, how can you start building relationships and coalitions amongst the project managers? Because unless someone is like a total sociopath, I can't imagine very many people actually want to show up to work every day and battle it out and play political games to get their work done. If that's true, you might want to consider looking for another job because that sounds like hell. But so if, so what I started to do and what I, what I would advise other people to attempt to do is to build those coalitions amongst project managers to say, listen, if we're not going to get this kind of priority direction from our management, how can we work together to say, hey, we're sharing all of these people. How can we start to make sense of this for them? Because all of our work is going to be better if we are not going to the same group of people 10 times a day with 20 different requests of what we need from them by the end of the day. So how can we have a stand-up as a team of project managers? Or how can we do sprint planning uh, or pre-planning together to say, all right, here's how we're going to prioritize all of these things that collectively 
all of our teams need to deliver for the next two weeks or whatever it is. And to start to try to build bottom-up prioritization is, is one way to try to solve that issue. That's amazing. That was, that was really healthy and exactly not what I, what I was thinking. <laughs> you were just like, light it up. Well, no, no, I, I wasn't. But I, I, I did have a situation where there was one particular person who decided that that I was his problem and um, did all kinds of weird backstabby things. And I just decided I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to do this. Like, I'm not going to set things on fire just to put them out. I'm good at my job. I do good work. I, I make sure there's not a big fuss going on at all times. So it doesn't look like I'm a big hero. And this guy was into being a big hero. And I, and I got kicked off the project that I was on. Um, which was really a downer, but I always try to just let the thing that guides my behavior be when this project's over, nobody's going to remember the project, but they're going to remember the way I behaved on the project. And that's going to be a thing that will follow me through my career. And I've been able to build a reputation that is pretty solid and I, and I'm proud of that, but I lost some battles along the way by just saying, yeah, I'm not playing that game. Like I'm not going to do that. So I think what you said was really great. I, I, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> well, but I also think that the experience you're describing really underscores the fact that like that, that coalition building might not always work. You truly might sometimes be working with people who aren't interested in that and who do have a different way of operating, which is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create emergencies and then I'm going to solve the emergencies because it makes me feel important and it makes me look good. And sometimes there are organizations where that behavior is rewarded. Yeah. At, at times like that, I do think it is very important to come back to that centering of like, who do I want to be in the world? And that might mean that you don't get the recognition in your organization that other people get because you're not willing to play that game. And if you, and you have to make peace with that, which I think you yeah. have. And I think that's the right thing to do, which is if that's the game, I don't want to win that game. And so it's okay if I get pulled off this project as much as I love it and I would love to see it succeed. I'm going to be okay with getting pulled off it because in order to stay on it, I have to be someone I'm not and yeah. that I'm not okay with. Well, and if the organization is supporting that kind of behavior, I'm clearly not the right person to be working on it because I'm not going to do that. Yes. Um, this was cool. This was a really great conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Don't sound so surprised. <laughs> no, I'm not surprised. I mean, I always have great conversations with you, but um, I just, I like it. Sometimes when I do the podcast, like it just happened, people say things and I'm like, crap, like that's freaking awesome. And I, that never even came near my window. Like I didn't even see that one. Um <laughs> So that I'm grateful to you for that. So thank you. Um, well, thank you. I was really excited to be invited. Thanks for having me on. We should plug the book. Oh, yes. I did write a book. You're right. Uh, yeah. Inter <laughs> Interactive Project Management, People, Pixels, and Process, available on Amazon. Which I will include a link to. And what if the folks want to get in touch with you with follow-up questions? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah. So uh, they can visit my website, meganmcnerney.com, M-E-G-H-A-N. M-C-I-N-E-R-N-Y. And that has links to all my contact info. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Irish Girl, uh, but I am currently locked out of my Twitter account. So if anyone listening works at Twitter or knows anyone at Twitter, wow. uh, please get in touch with me uh, so that I can figure out how to unlock my account. <laughs>
Wow, I hope it gets in luck. I was when I, I forgot that that was your Twitter thing till I looked it up this morning, and I'm, I, I saw it. I was like, "Damn, she must have got in that really early to be able to pull that off." <laughs> so. Yes, I grabbed that Irish. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Megan. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was good talking to you. You too. Thank you.